This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation about difficult subjects. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about telling difficult stories. Tonight's theme is about the wounded storyteller and, and stories about illness. My guest is Professor Arthur Frank, and Arthur Frank is a sociologist from the University of Calgary in Canada. He's the author of four books on telling stories about illness. His most recent book is Letting Stories Breathe, a socio-narratology. But the book we're going to focus on today is called The Wounded Storyteller, Body, Illness, and Ethics. Art also wrote an early book about his own experience, having a heart attack at age 39 and getting cancer at age 40. He brings both the personal and the academic perspective on what it means to tell the story of illness, what makes it hard to tell, what makes it hard to hear, and why it is important to persist in telling these stories. Welcome to Safe Space Art. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Let's start by having you tell me a little bit about your own story of being a patient and uh, of your illness and how you learned from personal experience about how important it was to tell a story about it. It's, it's so strange to, to be taken back to that because it was, it was very happily for me, it was more than 20 years ago. And so I think part of the, the objective of all this is to have the experience fold into the story. And at this point, it's, it's difficult to, to remember what happened as opposed to the, the many opportunities I've had to, to retell what happened Basically, I, I, it's just as you introduced, I had a, um, a very strange heart attack, probably uh, induced by a virus, and it didn't, normally those recover fairly quickly, as you know. This one didn't, it went on, uh, I continued to have very irregular cardiograms, and then finally they decided that was just sort of the way I am, and I, was, I got out of cardiac care, and I thought, oh great, this is, this is over, and I, I actually had this sense that now I had experienced my disaster. And, and lightning doesn't strike twice, as we all know. And so I, I really had this, this wonderful sense of, okay, I, I had a disaster and I got through it. Unfortunately, it just doesn't really work out that way. And a few months after I'd gotten out of cardiac treatment, I began to notice symptoms that after a, a really long period of, of misdiagnosis and delay um, turned out to be testicular cancer. And that was treated uh, quite successfully, uh, quite quickly, but, uh, but there was a long period getting to that, and, um, and I was in, in extraordinary chronic pain through that period. And then following my successful treatment for testicular cancer, uh, the, the sad part of the story is that my mother-in-law died. Uh, she'd been in and out of remission from breast cancer for about three, uh, 10 years, and um, finally um, went out of remission for the last time. So we had three years, uh, my wife and I, of of being in a world of of critical illness. And it was it was an extraordinary thing because I had these two different illnesses to compare and then I had the, the comparative experience of, of having cancer myself and then very quickly returning to the same cancer center and sometimes literally the same rooms. Um, to be with my mother-in-law during her illness. And I felt something had to be said about that. And that brings us to the topic of your program and, and your, your 
what we're really talking about tonight, why people feel a need to tell stories. Yes, and so when you say that, something had to be said about it. When you started out knowing you wanted to say something, did you know what it was that had to be said? Um, Yes and no. Uh, My wife and I, being sort of compulsive, academic, note-taking type of people, (laughs) had, uh, had noted throughout, we just had sort of kept informal lists of, of various moments that struck us as, as especially tellable for some reason, where, where we thought this, this, there were weird things that happened or things that seemed to us to happen wrong. or They, they were just suggestive to us. So we, we had various notes, and actually, originally we planned to write something together as a spousal dialogue of my experience of being the patient and her experience of being the caregiver, and then, really, her, her schedule just didn't admit that, and I felt I, I needed to get on with, with saying things that I wanted to express. And, uh, and so I, I literally sat down and, and wrote it with, with very few notes. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of what songwriters often say. You get the first one for free. <laughs> it, was, it, it was by far the, the easiest to write of the, uh, of the books that I've done. And so what is it about telling a story of illness that is so important? Why, why do people with illness need to tell their story? I mean, I, maybe, maybe a good way to get it, that would be for you to give me an example of one of those tellable moments that you and your wife had notes about. Or... Well, let me say something sort of abstract, and, and then I'll go back to, to an example. The abstract point, which has taken me a very long time to, to come to understand, I, I think we often sequence things the wrong way when we think about stories. We think of something happening to ourselves, and then we tell a story about it. And over the years, I've, I've come to realize that's, that's not really how life works. Um, life, I think, works because we know certain stories that lead us to, to understand this swirling mass of possibilities uh, in certain ways. And, and then we 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 tell another story out of the ones we know. And so it's it's stories all the way back for me. Um and and what we're really doing I think is is retelling a more recent story as as what we call our experience has changed the sense of earlier stories. Um to to give you to give you an example, um which is perhaps not the kindest one, but it, it comes to mind and it's fairly short. Um, that there was a moment rather late in, in treatment where it was, it was one of the last days um, after my last chemotherapy, what turned out to be my last chemotherapy treatment. And, um, and I'd, I'd had a sort of typical medical morning where I was having a, a scan to see, um, look for any further reduction in the size of the, the tumors that I had. And, and they had to make the very difficult judgment whether what was showing on the scan at this point was actually tumor or it was just scar tissue. Um, so I hadn't been able to eat that morning, and I'd had to get there very early um, for this, this scan. And then I was taken to another part of the hospital and waited to, to be examined by the oncologist. And, um, and I, I just had a, a, you know several hours of, of for medical reasons, not eating and, and being in treatment rooms. And um, at, at the end of this, I was, I was trembling. Um, this was, you know, after 
months of chemotherapy and so on, just from lack of food and fatigue and so on. And and this this nurse who'd worked with me, who really should have known better, came in and said, you know, you, you really need to take care of yourself. <laughs> and my wife and I just, just sort of looked at each other. Actually, the reason I'm like this is your demands of treatment. You know? uh-huh. um, I've been meeting your schedule. And 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 that's a as I say not not terribly kind because she was she was in, in many ways a wonderful other responsive nurse but but it illustrated ways in which the medical profession just doesn't get what they impose on patients you know they they just miss what it looks like from the other perspective and that was that was the the kind of thing that uh that we we had accumulated of these moments. The question was then, how do you how do you fit these moments into a, a larger narrative framework? And that's what it is to write. <laughs> and it's it's a very difficult experience to feel not gotten, like they didn't get what your experience was, and then almost to be blamed for it yourself. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually having having just a bit of difficulty hearing you in the yes, connection we've got. It's a little quiet in my ears too. Let's just make sure that we can hear each other. Is it any better yet? Thank you. That's that's a little better, yes. Okay, good. What I was saying is it's so hard to feel like that somebody's not getting something that's your experience and then to feel blamed for it. Well, that's exactly, and that, that really takes us to the heart of, of this this immense question of, of why do people need to tell stories? Uh, I think suffering is, is lessened. It's, it's mitigated uh, when we feel somebody else is is being an authentic witness. If there's one other person who who sees what we're going through and really gets it, um, that makes such an enormous difference uh, in the way we experience pain, uh, in the way we experience fear, and and by suffering I mean this whole constellation of of physical pain, anxieties, apprehensions. Um, what we're going through because we see what's happening to us is, is affecting other people. Uh, suffering is a whole constellation of, of things. And if someone else will, will witness that um, and can find ways to, to let us know that they see, even if there's nothing they can do, uh, and that's, that's a really important part, even if there's nothing that can be done for it, the, the simple fact that somebody else just looks at you clear in the eye and, and says, I realize this, I know what's happening for you, that, that lessens it so much. And conversely, it makes it so much worse when these people are just swirling around you and nobody seems to be able to recognize what's happening to you. They're all just following their agenda. Yeah, so what I'm struck by is it's not only how delicious it is to receive that, but how wounding it is to not receive it. Those are the reciprocal parts of it, exactly. Yes. So what I'm hearing you say is that part of what's important for people in telling their story is in increasing the chances that someone will get it, in in feeling seen and feeling heard. That's a big part of it. The other part, which goes back to to what I was saying earlier, and I appreciate this is is a complex idea that I've compressed, we tell stories in order to figure it out for ourselves. We speak, I think, in order to to hear ourselves 
speaking, and and thus quite literally to learn what is happening for ourselves, and and to not have the opportunity to speak um, is is to have life become chaotic, because if we don't have a story, then it's it's all just a swirl of stuff, you know. It's it's just it's just this and that and the other thing, and so we tell stories to figure it out. I see. So there's something about turning something into a story that helps us hold on to our own experience. Absolutely. Until it's a story. There's an expression that, that you've, you've probably heard in your medical colleagues. Uh, if it's not charted, it didn't happen. Right. Um, you know, if, if you don't put it in the chart, then it's, it's not really an event because there's, there's no record of it. It just didn't happen. The same kind of thing is, is true in terms of telling stories. I, I really believe that um, again, what we call experience, things are only retained. They only become worth calling experience when we've got a story about them. I, all kinds of things happen to us all day long that, that just simply bounce off. Um, you know, they're, they're all of these untold or untold stories or, or unexperienced potential experiences. And it's telling a story that, that turns it into something. It doesn't mean those things don't affect us. I think they can affect us quite profoundly. But they're inarticulate, and thus they're, they're unrecollected. One of the things you talk about in your book is about how story actually engenders, creates memory. That when we put something into language and we tell it, we then st- literally structure the way we'll remember that thing. Absolutely. And, and that's that is also certainly a danger of it. Uh, and it's, it's the way in which memory has a, uh, a very tenuous continuity with, with how other people might have seen the event at the time. Yes. Um, you well, know, what... Any number of people have written how, how memory inherently distorts. Um, that's, that's why we, we need to be very careful about how we tell stories about things, because as I started off saying at the beginning of our conversation, what happened folds into the story of what happened. And and after a while, what happened becomes the story of telling the story. Yes. So that's what you were saying at the beginning. We got distracted by not hearing each other. You were saying that, that it isn't that the, something happens and then I tell about it. You're saying there are stories all the way back and this new experience mostly shapes how I retell the old stories from the past. Did I understand that correctly? Exactly. It's, it's a chain. It's, it's just a chain. And the way in which I, I experience things now is, is so effective. Part of the, the difficulties I had with my, um, the people who were caring for me when I, when I finally was diagnosed was the, the months of suspicion and, and difficulty that I'd gone through being misdiagnosed. Um, and that's true for all of us in whatever we do. Um, the person who we're talking to now is, is in some ways an, an echo of, of the person like that we talked to before. Um, we all inherit um, either the, the good things, good experiences that people have had um, with others like us, or the, the bad experiences. And it takes quite a while in a relationship um, for us to begin to relate to the person who we're with now as opposed to relating to all of these echoes of, of people like that in the past. 
in medicine, I think this is a um, absolutely major issue um, because physicians and patients both see so many of of the same type of each other. Patients <laughs> go through a number of physicians. Physicians go through even more patients. Um, and so the, the issue of seeing the person who's in front of us um, becomes very difficult. Yes, and so for the patient to feel like I am really a person, that you are re- the doctor is relating to me as my particular unique person, can really feel lost. Like it's a genuine threat to that, just Absolutely. the structure of it. If, if a physician is going to have any kind of ongoing relationship with a patient, I think one of the most important things they can do is, is just take three to five minutes, and that's all it will take. Take three to five minutes and say, George, I, I need to get to know you, but you realize we don't have much time, and patients do realize that. Can you just tell me one thing about yourself? You know, can you just tell me one thing about how you live and how you want to live that's important for me to know so that I can know who you are? Um, it's a variation of, of a question that I often recommend to people who are doing end-of-life care uh, when they have a patient who becomes extremely withdrawn and it's difficult to engage them in talk, which is, well, what's the most important thing that happened to you in your life? You know, or if you want to vary the question a little bit, think of your life as a movie. And if you were to, if you were to go through that movie again, what moment would you like to freeze the frame? And just really be there for a while and think about what happened there. Um, these are all, you know, very quick questions, I say three to five minute kind of questions that can give you a huge amount of information and, and can convince the other person that, that you really want to get to know them. They want to get to know you as a person. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and I'm talking to Art Frank on Safe Space about telling stories about illness. So, Art, I want to come back to what you're saying. You mentioned earlier about if if stories are not really formed in our mind yet, if we're just sort of swirling with this set of experiences of this and that and this and that, it can be very hard um, to even be with your own experience. And you've described this at, at pl- in places as a chaos narrative, as a, an experience of chaos. And you've written that that's a very hard thing to listen to. And I, I wondered if you could say more about how hard it is for people who love someone going through illness to actually be present with them and why. Right. Maybe I could just say say a couple of things about, about the chaos narrative. By By the chaos narrative... I'm particularly talking about people who have chronic illnesses and who have multiple problems um, where they'll, they'll have a chronic illness and they'll be going through job loss. Uh, they may be having, having housing difficulties. Uh, oftentimes there will be multiple illnesses within a certain household. Um, so we're talking about people who are, who are living immensely difficult lives with uh, with, with all kinds of contradictory demands on those lives. And, and in the face of all this, they find it very difficult to put together a narrative in the sense of, of one thing leading to another and, and the story having a sense of progress. Um, their stories get stuck in a continual present tense of, of blows, of things just happening to them. And, and you can tell a chaos narrative because it, it has a and then, and then, and then 
quality and it's just like somebody's banging on the roof and and you're you know and it's a tin roof um so that that's what i i mean by it the problem of course for for people who are trying to to care for somebody who's in that and and especially for um professional caregivers uh is that the the person who's living the kind of life that that leads to a a chaos narrative becomes quite convinced that nothing can be done about this and so the the well-meaning professional comes along and says well could we try such and such and often with with quite good reason um the person who's who's experiencing all these troubles will immediately just know that won't work because and and so it, it becomes enormously difficult for the the person who's trying to help because all their their attempts at help get pushed away well as i say that's that's often because these these things have been tried and by themselves they've not been successful um so we we get into a a bit of a standoff situation where the the one person is trying to help but is being rebuffed and the other person is convinced that nobody can help and things deteriorate from there and i when i'm talking to to healthcare workers and i want to describe the chaos narrative i say this is the patient whose room you tiptoe by and you hope you don't have to go in there and there'll be a, an immediate sort of nervous laugh of recognition everybody knows we what, were taught about this in medical school. We were taught that this person was called the help-rejecting complainer. That was the yeah. term. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I guess what gets lost in that very unfortunate label yes, yes. are all the very good reasons why they've learned that, that those solutions are not going to work. Yes. Right, they come by this honestly. Yes. So let me ask you then, if if a person is in that position and they're less interested in the solutions that are going to or not going to work, but they're mostly needing that kind of listening and seeing that you were talking about at the beginning. Yes, it... I, I think what someone who's in that situation needs, first of all, before other things we hope can be done, is is to, to get over the fantasy that, that everybody who touches their life is going to be uh, going to reject them or be drawn into to this terrible situation themselves. Um, they first of all need the experience of, of somebody who can be with them um, but not be pulled down into the same whirlpool that they're pulled down into. So uh, unfortunately, this, this really does take real time on the part of the, the, the whoever's trying to help because you, you have to show that, that you can come back and you can listen, and you can be attentive, but this is not going to destroy you too. Um, you, you have to show them that it's it's possible to to hear these things and be with them, but not be destroyed by them. And and that that requires a period of of what you could call building not just trust, but but also not just trust in this other person that they'll continue to be there but also trust in the world that it's not going to destroy this other person who's trying to be there. So the, the first thing is to, to reduce or reverse the usual medical dictum of, of don't just stand there, do something. The advice is don't just do something, stand there. Or better yet, take a seat and sit there for a period of time. And it's all right to leave after some time. It's all right to say, we've been talking for 15 minutes. 
I will come back, but right now I have to go. You know, that's fine. Just do come back the next day, whenever. Let the person know what's a reasonable expectation. And the the regularity of that presence is is the beginning. I think that's how things have to begin to change. Mm. I want to ask you now about um, another challenge for being heard as a person with illness. You write about in your book about kind of re-entry or fears of re-entry, and, and I want to read a brief quote from your book about Oliver Sacks, after he'd had this very profound experience of not having not being able to feel his own leg. And you write, he had known chaos and been face-to-face with his own dissolution. His fear is of re-entering a world that cannot imagine and does not want to imagine that dissolution. This re-entry is a worse trouble than language can readily formulate. And I'd love to hear you say more about what it can be like to sort of leave the hospital in the sort of realm of the sick and re-enter the land of the well and the difficulties in bringing the story about that back into people's busy lives. Yes, I mean, one one finds this all the way back in, in mythology. Um, the, the hero has a very different, difficult time returning. Um, in, uh, you know, Tolkien, who understood this so well in Lord of the Rings, um, Frodo, when he goes back to the Shire, uh, he can never quite fit in again. Uh, people are suspicious of him, and, and he can't find terms to, to relate to these people who he was so close to before. Um, they didn't quite bring that out in the movie. They softened it. Uh, it's one of the, the most powerful parts of the of the books for me, is that when he finally gets back to the only thing he's ever wanted to get back to all this time, he realizes he can't be there anymore. Um, it's It's a very old recognition about human fate. And um, and one can find it in, in any number of, of stories of people who've lived through traumatic experiences. It comes up over and over again in, in Holocaust survivor stories. Um, I think part of the problem is how, how unprepared people are for this. Um, medicine wants so much to think that, that it all ends with with what they proclaim as a physical cure. Um, they want to hold up the end of treatment as being the everything is now all right. Um, and there's th- th- there's just no recognition that for the, the person who's been going through this, um, the end of treatment is, is often a bit of a uh, a false goal. When, when you get there, it, it doesn't bring the things that you, you hoped it will bring. Um, that that takes a great deal longer. It's not just right away. And and a great deal of it with, with cancer is cancer is a highly stigmatized disease, and, and people are not quite sure who they're dealing with when you come back from this world that that other people fear so much. Um, they, they realize that you've been someplace else, and it's pretty close to their worst nightmares, and they, they want to hear and they don't want to hear and they want to welcome you, but they're also extremely nervous about you. And over and over again, people don't realize this is going to happen and the surprise of it happening then makes it a whole lot worse. I think as with a lot of things in life, you can't make it not happen, but you can soften it a great deal by some preparation. Like what and if kind someone of... just, you know took the person aside and said, look, 
it's wonderful your treatment is ending, but you have to recognize this has been a huge thing, and there are going to be continuing problems. This, this won't be, you know, immediate. And a lot of the problems are people just not wanting to hear about it. I remember I was speaking once to a fairly large group of people, several hundred, and there were questions afterwards. And a fellow got up um, who just looked very gray. He was just out of treatment, and he had a kind of post-treatment grayness. He spoke very quietly, and he said, you know, I'm through treatment, and now nobody wants to talk about it. No one wants anything. They think, okay, that's over. And, And the attitude is, well, we stood by you during treatment, but now it's over. And I've had people tell me that wherever I've gone, in any gathering, it's just that's that happens again and again. Um, so it's very hard. It's hard for the family who feel like they've given so much to support the old person, and they want the the earlier version of that person to come back. You know. Yes. Um, but that just doesn't happen. It's not how life works. And and they want that person to move on. I'm sorry. They want. They, they want, want that person to move on. You know. Well, yes. Exactly. And, and unfortunately, move on often means move back to the way things were before. Yes. Um, they, they don't realize. Uh, the, the, the great novelist, uh, Reynolds Price, uh, in his, his memoir of, of having a uh, tumor in his spinal column, um, writes about, about how much your, your loved ones want back the old you. And, and how very unhelpful this is um, when, when you realize that the old you is not coming back again. Now, Price was left after his treatment uh, paraplegic. He was left with, with extraordinary uh, disabilities as a result of the treatment he'd gone through to his spine. And he was very clear that you know, he could just never be this person who others wanted back. And it wasn't useful to him. Um, to have them want that other person to come back. He really did have to move on. <laughs> That's right. So um, we've been able to go a little bit over time, Art, because the person who usually has the 8 o'clock show is out sick tonight. And I, but I, we are going to have to stop in a minute. So I want to just ask you um, one question in closing. You talk... Um, and you you talk and you write about the importance of giving the ill person voice and the, the ways in which telling that story can be so important, not just for them, but for others to hear. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that in closing, about the power of hearing other people's stories. I, I'm sorry, I'm also just about the, the power of stories? No, the power uh, for others in hearing the oh, story. Oh, thank you. Sorry, and, that, was, that was the part. Uh, we, we need more fundraising. People have got to send in money so we can, we can amplify. <laughs> Art, yes, that's right. Absolutely. So, send money, <laughs> send for, money to 874-3000 so that my guest can hear me better. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. Um, I, I think for others, they're... There, there are two. I mean, there are at least there, there are many things, but let me just just talk about two. One is uh, you need to to figure the way in which you're going to have a relationship with this new person, um, and uh, th- this is someone who who has something that they can offer you, and uh, and and in order to 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 now, as you said, move on, uh, you need to recognize that that in many ways you're starting over. 
Uh, but we're left with this paradox of, of starting over again with a huge history. And that's, that's not easy. Uh, it just isn't. The, the other reason why, why people need to hear stories is sooner or later something like this is going to happen to you. And, uh, and I think the stories that people bring back are, are immensely valuable to us um, so that, that when, when these terrible things do happen to us, we can get back up after the initial shock and, and realize that we're not the only ones in the world to whom this has happened. And I, if, there's, if there's one thing that's, that's worth closing on, Anne, it's the enormous problem of loneliness. Um, suffering and loneliness are, are twins. They travel together. They're rarely seen one without the other. And, and the most important thing for, for people who suffer uh, is to, to have others who can find ways to break through this loneliness. Um, to the extent that you can enter into to other people's stories of suffering, you are, you are gaining allies, you're gaining resources against your own future loneliness, against these moments when, when you will most need them yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because unfortunately, unless, uh, unless some terrible sudden accident befalls you, there will be moments of, of loneliness for all of us. That's how life is. That's the, the best short answer I can give to your, to your question that takes a lifetime of learning in order to answer. I used to, I used to run a breast cancer support group, Art, and I remember learning from one of the women in the group that we talked a lot about fear in that group, and she said fear is always born of loneliness. And they used to really talk about that, that, the yeah. most, that, that would, they would fear, fear and loneliness go together also so powerfully. So, Art, we are going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much. Your work is really an inspiration to me. And um, I wish you so on what you're doing. Well, thank you for the work. I, I can't think of a more important topic to have on the airways than, than exactly what you're doing, Anne, helping people tell stories that, that are difficult to tell and that too many people don't want to hear. So mm-hmm. thank you very much. You're very welcome. This is Dr. Anne on WMPG. This is Safe Space, and I've been speaking to Professor Arthur Frank from Calgary, Canada, about telling stories of illness. His book is The Wounded Storyteller, Body, Illness, and Ethics. I want to thank Jen Hodgson tonight for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Lawrence Langer on Holocaust Testimonies.